Well, good morning again. So great to have you here with us this morning. Um, Over the past five weeks, we have been studying, as you remember, I hope, the concept of worship. And we've used the phrase, no normal Sundays, as sort of our, our catchphrase, our hook phrase for this series. And it comes from writer Bob Coughlin, who said this, there are no normal Sundays, just fresh opportunities to experience the glory of God and be transformed. Through these weeks, we've tried to explore many areas of worship and these intersections of worship with other things in our lives. So we looked at the intersection of worship and prayer last week, the intersection of worship in the word, of worship and spiritual warfare, of worship and culture, of worship and justice. So we've sort of seen if worship is our lives, then there's lots of places where worship intersects with other parts of our lives. And we've been looking at that. And today we're going to look at one other, and it's maybe a little different than what you were expecting or thinking, but today we're going to discuss the intersection of worship and eating. Amen. Southern Baptist right there. Worship and eating. Now, you may feel like that this connection is random. You may feel like this sermon is, or this meditation is just an excuse to allow us to eat in a few minutes. It's not really, that's part of it, I guess. Um... But I think what we'll discover is that it's not nearly as random as it might sound. That if eating is part of our lives and worship is part of our lives, then there must be an intersection between the two. And in actuality, eating is a primary image throughout Scripture to help us understand our faith, both through literal meals and symbolic ones. Let me say it again. Eating is a primary image throughout Scripture to help us understand our faith both through literal meals and through symbolic ones. So we're going to take a whirlwind tour of eating in the Bible this morning, starting with Jesus. If you think of Jesus' ministry for a second and his parables and his teaching, there is a lot of eating and food imagery and eating happening in his ministry. It's not just sprinkled here and there. It is a strong trend so you might immediately think of Jesus, his maybe, the, maybe his, one of his most famous miracles that's in all four Gospels. It's his feeding of the 5,000, a food miracle. But you add to that Jesus eating in the house of the Pharisee, Jesus eating with Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus eating or heading out to eat with Zacchaeus, Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus feeding the 4,000, Jesus at the Last Supper, Jesus eating fish with his disciples after the resurrection, just to name a few. Jesus did a lot of eating in the Gospels. Clearly, there there was something to this eating with people thing. But Jesus' teaching is also filled with eating imagery. Maybe most primarily the image of Jesus himself as the bread of life. And then last week we looked at and we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread. But Jesus uses images of grain, of figs, mustard seed, and yeast. And his parables are rich with banquet imagery. The parable of the wedding banquet being the most obvious. But even the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes home, what does he do? Calls on a feast. Let's have a feast. Kill the fattened calf. And let's celebrate That which has been lost has been found. 
But Jesus did not originate the connection between eating and food and spirituality. Long before Jesus physically walked on the earth, the Hebrew people as a nation had a strong spiritual connection with eating as well. From manna in the wilderness to the showbread on the, in the tabernacle to the quail that God gave them from heaven that they ate and ate and ate so much so that it, it filled them and then overfilled them. We have Joseph's brothers seeking grain in Egypt during the famine. We have Esau selling his birthright for what? Soup for food. And then we have the Israelites whose whole mission and whole direction was pulling them towards Canaan, towards the promised land, towards the land of milk and honey. The images show up in the prophets, too. Elijah performs miracles to bring rain for the crops. He performs a miracle to fill the jar of the widow with flour and oil. Isaiah uses the fig tree as an image for Israel throughout his prophecies. And David, in the Psalms, invites us, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're not yet convinced that eating is a major imagery of the Bible, we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where two of the first commands are this. You are free to eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for as soon as you eat of that tree, you will die. Some of the first permissions and the first prohibition in the Bible has to do with food. To wrap it up, at the very end, in, Resurre- I mean, in Re- Revelation, in the last image, a couple last two chapters, the image of the new heaven and the new earth, it says that there'll be a tree of life that grows on each side of the river, and the tree of life will bear 12 crops of fruit, one in every month of the year. That's quite a tree, bearing a fruit every month of the year. And so the Bible wraps up with this image of a fruitful tree feeding the nations. So it's a per- pervasive theme. that I establish that well enough? It's <laughs> and that's just a little bit. We can't ignore the strong food imagery and eating imagery of Scripture, but what are we to make of this? So you might be saying, well, I see it, that's great, but what, what am I supposed to do with that um, information? Well, let me offer three brief um, ideas or applications of this reality that eating is such a major part of what happens in Scripture and major part of the way that God talks about our spirituality is wrapped up in this, this act of eating. First, I think at minimum we must say this. When we eat... We are engaging in something spiritual. When we eat, we're engaging in something spiritual. Now, that may sound a little counterintuitive because eating is out so obviously like a physical act. It's so obviously physical that we can sometimes um, forget that there's a spiritual side to it as well. But the sweeping imagery throughout Scripture reminds us that eating is more than just functional. Eating is more than just biological. There's something sacred in the act of eating. 
And I don't mean that we need to hyper-spiritualize eating from now on or you need to surround it with some kind of ritual, but I do think we need to think about eating as having a spiritual dimension. And this is certainly true of issues around eating, eating disorders, wastefulness, addiction to certain foods, carelessness with our food intake. All of these are food issues, but they have a spiritual dimension as well. Food can become an idol. Food can become an obsession. Food can become a god. Food can become the devil. There is a spiritual dimension to eating. And it happens too frequently in our lives, eating, and it shows up too frequently in Scripture for us to just say it's biological, it's functional. We have to do it to live. You have a, for lack of a better word, I I try to think of a better word for this, but you have a relationship with food. Is that, I couldn't think of it. Give me a better word afterwards. Um, You have a relationship with food that's either healthy or unhealthy for whatever reason. You have an understanding of food that's either healthy or unhealthy in terms of your theology behind eating and of food. So it's worth thinking about. It's worth realizing that when we eat, we engage in something spiritual. And it doesn't mean always has to be at the forefront of your mind, but it certainly should be something that um, we recognize the reality of as we eat and as we partake of food, that there is a spiritual dimension to it. Secondly, when we eat, we share in a common practice amongst all humanity that serves to break down prejudices, barriers, and presumptions. When we eat, we share in a common practice amongst all humanity that serves to break down prejudices, barriers, and presumptions. From person to person in this room, from family to family in this room, from culture to culture, from people group to people group, from tradition to tradition, there's a lot of different styles of eating. And there's a lot of different stuff that people eat that you may or may not be used to or familiar with. There's lots of different meals. There's lots of different traditions around eating. But there's one thing in common in everything I've said people are eating. Did you catch that trend? No matter where you go, this is, this is the profound moment of the day. No matter where you go, people eat. Which means there's a commonality amongst all humanity that breaks down barriers. We all must eat. Eat is a kind of unifying act. Eating is instant commonality. Everyone eats. The Pharisees knew this well in Jesus' time, which is why they refused to eat with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, the sort of the rough set, the rough crowd. Why did they refuse to eat with them? Because they understood, the Pharisees understood that by eating with them, I'm sharing something with them. I'm creating commonality with them, and they didn't want that commonality. So they chose not to eat with a certain group of people. Because there was a connection in eating, which is the very reason Jesus did choose to eat with those people. Because Jesus, too, understood that by eating with them, there was a connection, there was a commonality, there was an affirmation of we all have a common trait. We all eat. 
And it reflects the deeper common trait that we're all spiritual, that we all have souls. There was a lot of racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles that simmered even after Jesus had modeled a better way. And there are several places in the New Testament where the apostles, the earliest followers of Jesus, were trying to navigate which, this difficult reality, and this was their question as, as Jews, is it possible for Gentiles to become believers too, like we are, without becoming Jews first? It seemed to them that, the peop- that Gentiles need to become Jews, and then they could become what eventually was called Christians. And so there was a lot of discussion about this, could Gentiles actually just become Christians and followers of Christ? Well, you should not be surprised that the answer to that question came through an image of food. Peter, in Acts 10, while praying, had a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, filled with all kinds of food that the Jews considered unclean. And God said to him, take, kill, kill the food, kill the animals, and eat. And Peter says multiple times, no, I can't do that. I'm observant. And then God says to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Immediately after that vision, Jesus is called into the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius, a Gentile, and his entire household become directly Christians without going through becoming Jews first. And it's this image of food that creates this connection, this breaking down of barriers and prejudices and presumptions. When you share a meal with somebody, it's a starting point for friendship and for conversation and for connection. Eating is a place of common ground, which probably means this as application. We probably ought to be eating with one another more. And I don't mean just us having potlucks more, although that, I mean, if that's your application, I'm okay with that. Um, But I mean eating with people more. And this is true just of families. Um, Both our kids are here today, and they're, they're older, and they're teens. And as soon as they became teens, our kitchen moved more towards buffet than family style eating where one kid would come home and she'd have something to go to and then another one would come an hour later and we'd throw food at him and then she'd come back and get the rest of her dinner and then, you know, it was just sort of this not sitting down and eating. And so we started trying to have more intentional times of eating together. And this is true of of husbands and wives too. You guys can run a little cafe, buffet, diner at your own house where you never sit and eat. But there's something profound about eating with one another. But it may also be an application you can think through at work. I don't know what your lunch break is like at your work. Where I work at Pado Academy, we have 25 minutes for lunch. So it's pretty, pretty intense. It's a pretty intense 25 minutes to try to eat. And I'm always tempted with my little lunch bag, with my little peanut butter and jelly, to just sit in my room and like just eat it real quick because I don't have that much time. I have kids coming in again in 25 minutes. But I've been intentional about walking down to the faculty room where other people are eating and taking a moment to stop working and start connecting with my coworkers. I connect with the kids because I'm with them. But my coworkers, this is a moment where I learn about their kids. I learn about their lives. I learn about what's actually going on with them. I see people I don't normally see, but I can opt out of that. And so can many of you. Many of you can probably opt out of eating with other people. You grab something quick, 
You go to the cafe by yourself. You run to the diner. You just don't want to bother anybody. Maybe an application for today is you're going to be more intentional about either eating where people are, if there's like a cafe or a, a lunchroom, or you're going to walk over to the next cubicle and you're going to say, hey, I'm running over to the cafe. Do you want to come with me? Do you want to grab a bite together? It's a way of breaking down barriers and maybe breaking down barriers and prejudices you didn't even know you had because you've connected with people over a meal. And so it may be that a good application of this idea that meals and food break down barriers is just that you'll think more frequently about how can I eat with others? How can I partake food with others? So first, when we eat, we engage in something spiritual. Second, when we eat, we break down barriers because it's a common practice that's shared by all humanity. Lastly, when we eat, we are reminded that we are not self-sufficient. Just as the body requires to look beyond itself for survival and sustenance, so also must the soul look beyond itself for survival and for sustenance. With all the great advances of humankind, and I don't know all of them, there's things happening in secret labs all over the world, I am sure, but I have not come across any project that has figured out a way for humans to survive without food. I don't think we've progressed very far with the, here is a human who does not need to eat. For all the talk of human independence and human ingenuity and human strength, we are daily reminded, actually multiple times a day, we're reminded that we cannot survive on our own. We need to take in something outside of ourselves in order to survive. We are not self-sufficient. We are not self-contained. We are not self-operating. We need something outside of ourselves in order for us to survive. And that thing coming into us must be healthy and consistent. And so also is it true of our souls. With all the great advances of humankind, there has been no progress in figuring out a way for, humans, for the human soul to survive without something from the outside. For all the talk of human independence and human ingenuity and human strength, we are daily reminded, sometimes multiple times reminded of this. We cannot, our souls cannot survive on its own. Our souls are not self-contained. Our souls are not self-sufficient. We need something from the outside to fill us for survival and for health. You see, eating is a model of what the soul must also do, and that is we must partake of the goodness of God in order for our souls to survive. So in the same way, as you cannot stretch for long periods of time without food because your body just will break down, it'll crave for a while, and then it'll break down. We somehow have managed this trick with our souls where we can try to go long periods of time without any good spiritual food. And we think we're not hungry for it, and we think we're not breaking down. But eventually it shows up. Eventually it shows up that you're trying to be self-sufficient because you're not taking in the word and you're not taking in the prayer and you're not taking in fellowship and all that the scripture has to offer. We must take in spiritual food to live. 
no less than we need to take in physical food to live. It should be no wonder to us that Jesus establishes perhaps one of the most important symbolic traditions of our faith, and it's oriented around the spirit, the body, and food. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a f- where the physical and the spiritual, the bread and the body, the spirit and the soul, action and remembrance come together, and it's around food. The Lord's Supper is a special celebration, a sort of a heightened imagery of food. It's a heightened imagery, though, of what happens every time we eat. That each time that we eat can be a moment of remembrance of the provision of God. Each time we eat is a moment to recognize our dependence on God. Just like our body depends on the food on the plate, our souls depend on the nourishment of God. Each bite of food, if we're attentive, is a remembrance of the grace of God, not only in our physical lives, but our spiritual ones. Each taste reminds us that the Lord is good. Each spoonful, an encouragement that whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do so for the glory of God. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray a couple portions of Psalm 104. Listen to the words and the related to the theme that we've been talking about. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. And the waters give water to beasts of the field. Wild donkeys quench their thirst. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen.